So welcome to the first lecture in contract law. In this course, we will be studying the basic rules and principles of Irish contract law. And we're going to do this in two ways. Uh, first, we're going to learn what the rules are and how they are applied in actual legal cases. And second, we're going to critically evaluate those rules, asking whether they make sense and whose interests and purposes they serve. Adopting both of these perspectives will be common to most of the legal subjects that you study at university, and so it's useful to get to grips with them now. In this introductory lecture, we're just going to cover five key topics. First, we're going to discuss what a contract is and talk a bit about the unusual legal nature of contracts. Second, we're going to briefly consider the moral and social importance of contracts in human life. Third, we're going to sketch the general approach to studying the law of contract that we'll adopt in this course. Fourth, we're going to consider the importance of theory in the study of contract law. And finally, we're going to conclude with a short puzzle based on an ancient contract. And I'll invite you to think about the possible solutions to that puzzle in advance of the next lecture. So let's start with the first of those topics. What is a contract? Well, you should be familiar with this since you enter into contracts all the time. Every time you purchase a good or service, you form and finalize a legally binding contract. This contract entitles both you and the person or business with whom you're trading to certain legally enforceable rights. Now, sometimes those contracts get completed immediately. So when you purchase a bar of chocolate at a shop, for example, a contract comes into existence, but unless something goes disastrously wrong with the chocolate bar, for example, if it's gone off or something, the contract will very quickly come to an end, and you aren't going to think about it anymore. Sometimes, however, there's a delay between the formation and the completion of a contract. If you hire somebody to do work on your car, for example, a contract is formed once you agree on the work to be done, but it is not completed, or performed, to use the legal jargon, until they finish doing what they agreed to do and you pay for their services. Now, many of the contracts that we study during the course of this year will be of this form, this delayed form. And one reason for this is that it's more likely that something goes wrong with a delayed contract of this sort. People will make mistakes in the work that they agreed to do, or they will fail to do what they promised to do. And mistakes and failures of this sort are what lead to legal disputes, and that what, that's what gives rise to legal judgments, and we study, for the most part, legal judgments. Now, I should also mention here that there are sometimes contracts that continue on an indefinite or ongoing basis. So many service contracts are of this form. So you agree to pay for a continuing service, and another party agrees to provide it. Reflecting on my own life, I'm often struck by how many ongoing service contracts I myself am party to. Just to give a short list of examples, I'm party to ongoing contracts with both car insurance and health insurance providers, with my mobile phone and broadband service providers, with my landlord for the rental of my home, and with NUI Galway as my employer. It is worth reflecting yourselves for a moment on how many such ongoing contracts you might be party to. Now, from a legal perspective, contracts are unusual. Most of the time, we think of the law as something that is imposed upon us from the top down by the government or some other legal authority. The courts or the EU, for example. They formulate or decide on the law and we have to follow it. Think about criminal law, for example. If the government wants to make it an offence not to wear a mask in an indoor setting, to pick a recent controversial issue, they will have to draft some legislation stating that this is an offence and then empower the police and the courts to enforce this law. 
once the law is passed, we all have to follow it. Contracts are different. In a contract, you create your own legal rules through negotiation and impose them upon yourself and your contracting partner. So if I enter into a contract with my mechanic to repair my car, I am in effect creating a legal obligation for myself to pay him if he performs the works I request, and he is creating a legal obligation for himself to perform those works. If either of us fails to fulfill our obligations, we can go to the courts to resolve our dispute. So contracts are, at one and the same time, an expression of our freedom to impose obligations on ourselves, and, once we enter into them, something that limits our freedom to act as we wish. So there's a sense in which a contract involves two parties trading a little bit of their own freedom with each other. I take away the mechanic's freedom not to repair my car, and he takes away my freedom not to pay him for not doing so, or for doing so. Now there is a major caveat to all of this, although I'm suggesting that we get to choose the obligations we impose upon ourselves through contractual negotiation, this isn't always true in the real world. As we're going to see throughout this course, sometimes we don't actually have all that much say in the terms and conditions of the contracts into which we enter. So now let me say something about the moral and social importance of contracts. This is the second topic that I wanted to address. Now in every introductory lecture, it's important for the lecturer to develop some kind of grandiose theory or perspective on their subject. This is designed to convince the student of the overwhelming importance of studying this particular subject, and sadly I'm not averse to this convention either. So I want to say a couple of words about why I think contract law is important. I think contract law is important because contracts are a core element of the moral and social fabric of human society. Human society is a collective endeavor. The only way that we're able to live together in relative peace and harmony is because we can cooperate and coordinate our behavior with one another. Now, in order to do this, we need to agree with those other people on what it is that we can and cannot do. Some of these agreements are explicit, we say or write down what it is we agree to, and some are implicit. We just coordinate our behavior on the basis of some unspoken or unwritten agreement. Either way, though, agreement is essential to both morality and sociality. If you'll forgive me, I just want to go on a brief tangent here to explain the importance of this idea. There is a primatologist and psychologist whose work I quite like. His name is Michael Tomasello. And he's famous for a series of experiments that he's performed over the past three decades on chimpanzees and humans, often comparing and contrasting their social behavior. Using the knowledge gained from these experiments and review of human history and similar experiments performed by others, Tomasello has developed an interesting theory about the history of human social morality. In developing this theory, he tries to answer the question, why is it that humans cooperate so closely with one another and feel that they have moral and legal obligations to one another? He suggests that it all started with cooperative hunting. So when humans developed primitive weapons like spears and axes, they developed the ability to hunt larger animals, deer, bison, and so forth. Now, this was desirable at the time because larger animals meant more energy-rich food. Apologies to the vegans and vegetarians here, but bear in mind that cooperative hunting predates modern agriculture. But it was not possible for humans to hunt these larger animals on their own. Two or more humans had to cooperate in order to do this. But how could the cooperation be guaranteed? Was there not always a risk that one member of the hunting team might go off and hunt another animal by themselves, or else not bother to help out since hunting was always a risky endeavor? 
Sure, there was always that risk, but humans overcame it by developing a complex moral psychology. When two or more people got together to cooperate on a hunt, Tomasello argues that they each agreed that they had some role to play in the hunt. Perhaps one of them had to chase the animal into a clearing while the other one threw the spear. That in fulfilling these roles, they agreed that they had obligations to each other. And if they failed to discharge those obligations, they could then be held to account and blamed by the other party. So from these early cooperative hunting agreements, Tomasello argues that humans developed a more complex set of social agreements, agreements about property rights, family obligations, governmental obligations, and so on, and that these agreements form the basis of our modern social moral order. Now, agreement is the essence of contract, as we'll see. And so what Tomasello is suggesting is that contracts are, in a sense, the living heart of social morality. And to be clear, it's not just Tomasello that develops this idea. It's an idea that's popular among many political and legal philosophies, philo- uh, philosophers. According to some figures such as Thomas Hobbes and John Rawls, both leading liberal, moral, and political philosophers, the whole of society is one big contractual agreement. So, for example, you're studying constitutional law this year, and if you apply this social contract theory, you could argue that the Irish constitution is, in a sense, the contractual foundation for the entirety of Irish society. Now, I don't want to go overboard with this idea. There are problems with assuming that the whole of society is just one big contractual agreement. After all, it's not as if it's a contract that any one of you signed up to. You're born into it without your choice. And even though I submit that all contracts are agreements at their foundation, it's not true that all agreements are contracts. So, for example, if you agree to meet your friend for lunch, the law isn't going to recognize this as a legally binding contract. And one of the things we'll be studying this year is exactly which types of agreements get recognized as legally binding contracts. Nevertheless, I do hold to the point that I'm just making here, which is that contract is at the core of human morality and human sociality. Now let's move on then to the third topic I wanted to discuss. How are we actually going to study contract law this year? Well, for the most part, we're going to study it by examining the specific rules of contract law. And we'll find these rules in two main sources. We're going to find it in case law. So in the common law system, judges formulate legal rules through their decisions And judge-made law has been, in fact, the chief way in which the basic rules of contract law have developed. This is true really until the latter part of the 20th century. And even today, case law is still an important source of rules in contract law, although nowadays the main focus in case law is on refining and applying pre-existing rules to new circumstances. We're also going to find the rules of contract in legislation, So there are now a number of specific statutes that contain rules of contract law, and these rules are voted on by politicians in legislative assemblies and passed into law. Now, in our case, we'll be studying a number of Irish statutes on the rules for consumer contracts, as well as some EU directives and regulations that have relevance for the terms of contracts. Over time, legislation has become a very important source of contract law rules, even though sometimes the legislation we have does little more than codify rules that were already present in the case law. Now, the course will work throughout by me introducing some rules of contract law from one of these two sources and explaining how it works by applying it to real cases. 
We'll then explore the qualifications and exceptions to those rules through additional cases. And you are going to be expected to take this information and apply these rules to your, yourself to hypothetical problem questions, fake or invented cases. And this skill of applying the rules that you learn through the study of the history of contract law to hypothetical cases is a core aspect of the assessment for this module. And to get good at it, you will need to have a good knowledge of how the rules have been applied in the past, and also lots of a practice at applying them to hypothetical cases. So there are going to be quizzes and tutorials throughout the course to help you with developing this applicative skill. Now, in addition to this, we're also going to be studying the rationale or purpose behind the contract law rules. And we're going to critically evaluate the rules in light of these purposes. So one thing you're soon going to learn is that the rules of contract law don't always make sense. We might start out with what seems like a nice simple rule, but when we examine the case law, we see that there are lots of qualifications and exceptions to that rule. Sometimes different judges in different cases seem to apply the rules in different ways. Sometimes the inconsistency in the rules is a source of frustration for students because they sometimes mistake this inconsistency for their own inability to get to groups with the subject. My advice here is not to let it get to you. Sometimes, for sure, your frustration could be due to an inability or a struggle to understand what we've learned in class. But oftentimes, the inconsistency that you encounter in the rules of contract law is a feature of it. It's not a bug. And the inconsistency is oftentimes one of the things that makes contract law interesting. It's what allows us to ask important critical questions. Does this decision really make sense? Is the law achieving a good outcome with this rule? Could the rules be improved? We will be asking and trying to answer those questions throughout the year, and they are a key element of another aspect of the assessment for this course, which is writing essays or critical reflections on contract law. Now, throughout this course, we're going to be studying Irish contract law, but in doing so, as you'll see, we'll be discussing an awful lot of English case law, English and Welsh case law, to be precise. And we're also going to be studying case law from some other common law jurisdictions, Canada, Australia, the US, New Zealand, and so forth. Now, you might wonder why we do this. Why don't we just stick to Irish contract law? And there are two main reasons for this. First, Ireland and England were, until the 1920s, part of the United Kingdom, and so both followed basically the same contract law rules. And this is important because a lot of the foundational rules of contract were decided in cases that predate the separation of the two jurisdictions. The second reason as well is that even after Irish independence, there were a lot of enduring similarities between Irish and English contract law, so much so that Irish judges frequently followed decisions made by their English peers. In this way, English contract law effectively just became part of Irish contract law through judicial decision-making. And the similarities between the jurisdictions have continued right up until the present day. Until recently, of course, both were members of the European Union, and so followed similar European Union rules. And it is still common for English contract law cases to be cited and discussed in Ireland. Nevertheless, you know, over time, there has been some separation between the two jurisdictions, and the departure of the UK from the European Union may limit the influence of English contract law in Ireland in the future. The important thing, however, to bear in mind about all of this is that the post-independence um, law 
of contract originates in Ireland. And it's only that type of law that's binding in Ireland. So when we cite or discuss English or other common law cases from the post-independence era, it's either because these cases have been incorporated into Irish law through judicial decision-making, or because they provide some kind of persuasive or illustrative authority that the Irish courts may follow in the future. I should also mention here, uh, as I said in the video introduction to this course, the main lecture content for the classes, in other words, the explanation of the rules and the case law and the critical reflections on those, they're going to be presented in this format, in in a series of audio podcasts, each approximately 30 minutes in length and complemented by notes and slides. There will occasionally be some video lectures that explain certain ideas where visual support seems relevant or needed. And then we'll have on-campus lectures, where possible and when possible, that are going to consist of deeper dives into key cases, some practical exercises that are relevant to the assessment in this course, as well as some guidance on key study and preparation skills. There will also be a set of online tutorials, starting later in the semester, that will further enhance your ability to apply and critically reflect upon the legal rules. Okay, so I'm nearly done now for this first lecture, but before wrapping up, I want to say something about the importance of theory to this course, and that's the fourth topic that I wanted to discuss with you. So in my experience, some students are very reluctant to examine the theoretical underpinnings of contract law. They typically say things like, they should just be taught the law and nothing else. To these students and to the rest of you, I would make the plea that it is going to be very difficult for you to understand, apply, and critique the law without taking some theoretical perspective on it. And let me explain why that is the case. So the reason for this has to do with the structure of legal rules. Throughout this course, I'm going to argue that most legal rules can be stated in a conditional if-then form. In other words, no matter how they are actually stated or defined in case law or statute, you can translate most legal rules into the following abstract format. If some set of conditions are satisfied, then certain legal consequences follow. So if X is satisfied, then legal consequence Y follows. Now, those of you who are studying critical thinking for lawyers in the second semester with me will go into this idea in a bit more depth. But to give an example of contract law, the following is basically one of the foundational rules of contract law. If A, person A, makes an offer to person B, and if person B accepts that offer, then, provided certain other conditions are met, a legally binding contract is formed between A and B. Now, we'll examine this rule in more detail in the first part of this course, but for now I just want to point out that as I've stated it, this rule is actually quite vague. You may be wondering to yourself, what exactly is an offer? What is an acceptance? And why do we insist on these things before declaring that a legally binding contract exists? Studying case law will help us to some extent make the rule less vague. It will show us how judges in the past have determined what counts as an offer and what counts as an acceptance, and perhaps, more importantly, what doesn't count as either of those things. But how did those judges decide what counts? They did so, presumably, because they had in mind some theory about what it is that the rules of contract law are supposed to do. For example, the the moral or economic function that they serve. And what it is that they, as judges, ought to be doing when applying the rules. So to understand their decisions, and to apply and critique the law yourselves, 
you are also going to need to have some theory of contract law in mind. So what might that theory be? Now it turns out that there are many theories of contract law, and you're going to encounter a bunch of them throughout this course, and over time you might become convinced that one of them is correct or more persuasive than the others. At the outset, however, I would recommend that you try to keep an open mind and examine all of the different theories that are on offer. And what I will suggest for the time being is just a general framework for thinking about the theoretical aspects of contract law. And I take this framework from a book called Understanding Contract Law by John Adams and Roger Brownsword, which I don't recommend that you purchase this text, but it is useful supplementary reading for those of you who want to have a kind of theoretical introduction to contract law. So this framework starts from the recognition that there are two main categories of theory that are relevant to understanding contract law. There are descriptive or explanatory theories. These are theories that try to make sense of the existing set of contract laws, rules to unify them under a single explanatory principle and to help predict future decision-making in contract law. And then there are prescriptive or normative theories of contract law. And these theories try to specify the goal or function of contract law. In other words, what it is that the rules of contract law ought to be in an ideal world. And normative theories are not bound by the reality of existing rules, or they don't necessarily try to explain existing case law. Instead, they are used really to critique and develop existing rules. Right, so those are just two kind of general categories of theory that are relevant. There are then four more specific theories of contract law, each of which has a, both a descriptive and prescriptive aspect to it that I think are worth keeping in mind throughout the year. The first two of these are theories about what it is that judges do or ought to do when deciding cases, and the other two theories are theories about the function or goal of contract law. So the first theory is formalism. So in its descriptive form, this theory claims that judges just follow rules. So when they're deciding contract law cases, all they are doing is applying pre-existing rules to the facts in a logical, mechanical fashion. In its prescriptive form, formalism claims that this is all judges ought to be doing. In other words, judges should not be making up new rules or deciding social and economic policy through their decisions. The second theory is realism. In its descriptive form, this theory claims that judges don't actually just follow the rules, they also try to achieve certain outcomes, for example, economic efficiency, fairness, and so on. They will pay some attention to the rules, but they may also bend or stretch the rules to achieve their preferred outcome. And you can't understand the law of contract without accepting that sometimes judges do this. In its prescriptive form, realism is the theory that claims that judges really ought to be doing this. They ought to care about the outcomes of their decision-making. And usually realists claim that this is because it's impossible in practice to be a strict formalist that just mechanically applies rules to facts. Partly, again, because rules are often vague or ambiguous in, their, in terms of their application. The third theory of contract law is market individualism. In its descriptive form, this theory states that contract law rules can be understood as an attempt to protect the efficiency of economic markets and also freedom of choice. In particular, market individualists focus really on two key ideas. There's the idea of the freedom of contract, the idea that individuals should be free to negotiate the terms and conditions of their own agreements, and the sanctity of contract, 
i.e. once an agreement has been negotiated and formed, the parties should be bound to it. In its prescriptive form, market individualism is a theory that claims that contract law ought to protect the market in efficiency and freedom and sanctity of contract. Then the final theory of contract law that we'll discuss for the time being is consumer welfareism. In its descriptive form, this is a theory that claims that contracts can often be unfair to consumers, who are usually in a less powerful position than commercial enterprises. And one of the things that judges and others try to do when formulating rules of contract law is to protect or correct for this inequality of bargaining power and ensure consumer welfare and well-being. In its prescriptive form, this is a theory that claims that protecting consumer welfare is something that the contract law ought to do. Now, these four theories can be combined in various ways. It is possible, for example, to adopt both a formalist and a market individualist perspective on contract law. So, for example, you might believe that judges decide cases by logically applying pre-existing rules. That's formalism. But that these rules also happen to serve the goals of market individualism. So that's the market individualist theory. Now, my own view is that none of these four theories makes complete sense of contract law, nor is any of them entirely normatively compelling. Still, I think they are useful when we try to understand and critique the law of contract. And again, I just want to add that these are just four theories. There are many other theories of contract law out there too. Some of them are more academic and philosophical in nature. I won't go into these today, but it is worth noting now that they are out there and you may encounter them in some of the books and articles you read over the course of the year. Okay, so that's pretty much it. Uh, In the next lecture, we're going to start discussing some of the actual rules of contract law, focusing initially on the rules around the formation of contracts. Let me close out this lecture, however, with just a famous puzzle involving a contract. And I think this puzzle will help you to think critically about the way in which conditional rules work in particular. So I'm just going to describe the puzzle first. It's a story about something that happened in ancient Greece. And then I'll invite you to reflect on it critically. So here's the story. In ancient Greece, a young man called Euathilus aspired to be a lawyer. He went to the famous sophist, a teacher of rhetoric and argumentation, called Protagoras, and asked him to be his pupil. Unfortunately, Euathilus had no money, but Protagoras confident in his abilities as a teacher, agreed to take him on. In the process, they agreed upon an unusual contract. Euathilus agreed to pay Protagoras for his lessons if and only if he won his first case in court. So Euathilus took the lessons, but as it turns out, he decided that the law was not for him. So he never practiced law. Protagoras was unhappy about this and decided to take Euathilus to court demanding payment. Protagoras had a lot of friends in the legal system, and so he fixed it so that no lawyer would be willing to represent Euathilus in court. So Euathilus had to defend himself. So, as it turns out, this case was Euathilus's first case in court. And both men went to court confident that, no matter what the outcome would be, they would each, in a sense, win. Euathilus either wouldn't have to pay Protagoras, or that's what Euathilus thought, and Protagoras thought that he would definitely be paid by Euathilus. So here's the puzzle. Why are both of them so confident? Um, Were they right to be confident? We'll discuss the possible answers to that in the next lecture.